0: Father, it's um, a lot easier for us to imagine um, a really bad future than it is for us to to imagine something like heaven. And um, it's far easier for us, Father, to to long for idols masquerading as heaven, to, to long for utopias that we human beings will make or create by our own power. Father, it's far easier for us to imagine that than it is for us to imagine uh, heaven. It's hard for us, Father, even to hear what your word has to say about it. So we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work in our minds and hearts and wills, in our imagination and in our memories. We ask, Father, that uh, you would make our minds and hearts and wills, our imaginations and our memories, that you would make it good soil, so that your word will enter in to our mind and our heart and our will, our imagination, our memories, our longings and our yearnings, that your word will enter into us as good soil and that we will bear much fruit for your glory, that, Father, we will have a a great desire to, uh, to see you face to face and to stand in your presence. Father, fan and flame within us such a desire, such a longing and a yearning, And this we ask in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Just uh, apologize in advance for my coughing. Um, On one hand, I just rejoice to see all the leaves coming out in the trees. On the other hand, I I also have allergies and asthma, and so it, it just, I forgot to take my antihistamine this morning, so I'm, I'm coughing a little bit from allergies. It's, uh, it always means that spring is a little bit bittersweet um, uh, for, for me, uh, since it brings both allergies and, I mean, who wouldn't want the weather? Allergies are worth it to have the weather. Um, uh, probably in our culture, uh, I think even amongst young people, John Lennon's song, uh, Imagine, is, uh, is very well known. It begins, Imagine There's No Heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. And then it goes on and says, uh, you know, maybe one day you'll join us and then the world will be as one. And I'm, I'm not going to, uh, to make, take any cheap shots at, uh, at John Lennon and his song, um, but I am just going to comment that I think he's wrong. I actually think that it's actually very hard to imagine heaven. Um, sorry, what's that? yeah i mean I think it 's very easy to imagine that there 's no heaven that 's not actually very hard um, i think it 's the easiest thing in the world to imagine there 's no heaven <laughs> I think it 's hard at all it 's very easy what 's actually hard is to imagine heaven um it 's a well known problem in in drama and in novels and in um and in theater that it 's far harder to portray a good character than it is to portray a bad character. <laughs> in Milton's classic, Paradise Lost. The best parts of that poem are where he's describing the devil <laughs> and hell. And the weakest part is where he's trying to describe heaven. And um, so in fact, I think it's very easy to imagine there's no heaven, uh, but it's very hard to get our minds around uh, around heaven. And so um, if, if you find your mind starting to drift this morning, one of the things you can pray, <laughs> is um, that the words here in the Bible which are describing something which ultimately words can't really describe and my attempt to bring this word home to you that that somehow or another the Holy Spirit will move and work in minds and hearts and wills in a way um, that that bring these words home to your imagination, your heart and your mind and your will because uh, I think the words that are described here in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 are hard for us to imagine, and it's easy for our minds to drift. So please pray uh, as, we, as I go through it. If you find your mind start to wander, say, oh yeah, the George said that when that happens, I'm supposed to pray. <laughs> and then we'll all get something uh, out, of, out of this very, very beautiful and very powerful passage of scripture. Um, and now before we sort of look at what it says about heaven, uh, to bring out a bit of a contrast, I'm going to try to tell you two jokes i'm saying i 'm actually going to tell you two jo- jokes. The, the question will be whether anybody laughs. Um, I tried it with my family, and these jokes flew like a lead balloon. Uh, all of my kids and my wife just looked at me blankly after I told the first one, and because uh, i 'm a dad, not to be deterred, I told the second one, and that also flew like a lead balloon. so we 'll see if this works for any of you. OK? so here 's the joke, the first joke. And by the way, just in advance, I I invented the second joke myself. I adapted, I I adapted the first joke into a second joke, and uh, so the first one I heard from another place, and the second one I I developed. So, um, the Hindu comes. A Hindu is visiting Ottawa, and they come to one of those hot dog vendors that you see downtown in nice weather, sometimes in bad weather as well. And uh, and she asks, uh, "Do you have vegetarian hot dogs?" And the vendor says, "Yes, I do." And and uh, he said. You want one? And she says, yes. He says, what do you want on it? And she says, make me one with everything. The Hindu, make me one with everything. You see, if you have to explain it, you have to explain it. It's not a joke, right? The Hindu, make me one with everything. I thought it was really, I thought that was so funny when I read it. So here's the second one. She has a Buddhist friend, and so the, the, the Buddhist friend says, I'd also like a hot dog, and, uh, and the vendor says, what would you like on it? And she says, make me one with nothing. <laughs> I, I, I invented that one myself, so <laughs> if you tell it to somebody else, you have to give me credit for it. Either that or blame, okay? If they don't laugh, you can say, that's my, my pastor. He's so lame when it comes to jokes. Uh, anyway, so, you know that's the Hindu make me one with everything, and for Buddhists, make me one with nothing, and um, and so the Bible is going to portray a very very different end than Hinduism or Buddhism, and a very very different end than Hollywood portrays, and that common human religion portrays, and it's found in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and today we're just looking at Revelation 21. So if you turn in your Bibles with me, we're going to uh, to look at this chapter. And uh, I can't figure out a good hot dog uh, joke description of what the Christian uh, belief is. Maybe one of you during the sermon, by the end of it, will have a hot dog joke for Christians. Uh, I couldn't figure one out. But as you already know, I'm not very good at figuring out jokes. So uh, here's, here's what it says. Uh, what is it that the Christians understand about the end of all things? And here's how it begins. Verse 1, of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven... Oh, we're in trouble. I didn't set my stopwatch. That means I have an extra 10 minutes to preach. No, just joking. So verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Just sort of pause there. We're going to actually spend a bit of time on this verse. Um, it's, it's not saying that there's not going to be any surfing in heaven. Um, it's not saying that all of us who want to you know, move to, to places, all those people who go to Florida in the winter so they, and be by the ocean, that, that's actually not pre- preparing yourself for heaven at all. What it is, if you read all the way through the book of Revelation, I haven't commented on it, I don't think I've commented on it once, uh, but the, every time that the sea is mentioned uh, in the book of Revelation, the sea is a symbol, and it's a symbol of evil. And, uh, and so this is just a continuation of the of the imagery. If you take a concordance and you look at it, and you look at when the sea is mentioned, uh, it's always mentioned in connection with the devil. So it's uh, it's not being literal here. It's uh, it's just a continuation of the of the imagery. And and so what it's trying to say, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It means that there's no evil whatsoever, no source of evil that all you have is the new heaven and the new earth with no evil whatsoever. And, and here's the first point. The first point is, I will have a resurrection body. And I just realized after I'd sent it to Andrew and before I, I, I could text him again, we should get rid of the word to and put in the word and, and then the sentence actually makes sense. Uh, which is a good thing for a sentence to do uh, to make sense. I will, ha- <laughs> I will have a resurrection body and dwell in the new heaven and earth that God will make. I will have a resurrection body and dwell in the new heaven and earth that God will make. That's what the Bible teaches, uh, that God's desire for every human being that was born, we won't all get there, talk about that in a few moments, but that's what God's desire is. Uh, he is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and he will give his people, he will transform us so that we can live in that new heaven and that new earth. You know, it's very funny. Um, I've been waiting several weeks to say this because I, I realized it several weeks ago, and so now's my chance. Um, you know, when I said that, uh, you know, the Hindu. Hot dog person says, "Make me one with everything," and the Buddhist, "Make me one with nothing." In, in both of those uh, systems of thought, basically, the end of all things is one version of what Christians believe hell is. Isn't that sort of shocking? Because in Christian circles, um, in Orthodox Christian circles, there's a bit of a debate as to uh, whether uh, after, in a sense, God punishes us in hell, that eventually there's an annihilation that we no longer exist. And other Christians believe that there's not an annihilation, and I'm not going to comment on it in the sermons. That would be a whole, that would be one of those things we'd have to have sort of a a couple of Bible studies at. There's a whole range of texts and complicated things to sort out. I mean, but but here's the thing. If that annihilation view of hell is correct, then that, the annihilation, which Christians understand as hell, that's exactly what Hindus and Buddhists seek as heaven. Because to be one with everything is to completely and utterly lose yourself. You, you cease existing, right? The, the famous analogy is it's like a drop of water joining the sea. And once you put some water, a drop of water into the sea, that the drop of water disappears it no longer exists it's just the sea just the ocean and and you know so this this has to mean that if if in fact for a buddhist and a hindu what they long and yearn for is a is a, is annihilation and if the bible is inviting us not to long for annihilation but to flee annihilation and instead to understand that god that, there's, that, that God is going to make a new heaven and earth. It's not that he's just going to make a new earth. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and that he will make us so that we can dwell there at home, dwell in earth and heaven. That's a, that's a radically, radically different vision of what's going to happen. It's, it's the end of the, of the big picture of the Christian story. In a sense... Chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, they're the the true counterpoint to the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And and in fact, even in a few moments when we're going to talk about some of the things that God's going to do in the new heaven and the new earth, it'd be very interesting for you later on to go back and read Genesis 3, where evil comes into the world, and you see what happens as evil comes into the world, pain and tears and sorrow and, and all of that, and then you see what's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a specific reversal we're overcoming of the fall. And in the big picture of the Christian story, God makes everything good. God creates everything and he makes it good. And he makes human beings to have a a pivotal, central role in the created order. That human beings, in a sense, are the priests of the created order. That they alone are made, we alone are made in the image of God, the likeness of God. That we, in a sense, are to give voice uh, and, and, and a specific type of intimate, personal relationship with God on behalf of the entire created order, and, and that, that the, the, the Adam and Eve the, who, who have this, this in a sense, representative role for all human beings who since existed, that they they chose not to be the, those those priests and to be in union with God and communion with God and fellowship with God and they chose to be like God themselves. They chose to dethrone God in the attempt to be God themselves. So the big Christian story is that it begins with creation, which is good. It moves to the fall, which means that now human beings and all human reality is slightly bent, that it's no longer the way it was intended to be, that there's now evil in the world, that there's now pain in the world, that there's now death in the world. And, and it all comes as a result of, the, of Adam and Eve and, and their decision to try to be like God's themselves. And then all of what we know from as, as the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 4, right to the end of Malachi, that is the period of promise. It is the period of God revealing to people what he is going to do to rectify the situation. It's God making clear to people that they can't rectify it themselves. To make it clear just how far they have they've been bent away from God, and a promise that God is going to send to deliver. And then we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we have God keeping his promise. Right? We go from creation, to fall, to, to the promises, to God keeping his promise. In the person of His Son Jesus Christ, who the Bible describes as a second Adam, and Jesus lives amongst us, suffering the trials and temptations that we suffer only without, sin. but He does all that He experiences these trials and temptations without sinning. But that isn't what we need. We ultimately need this sacrifice that only God can make where evil is dealt with and rebellion is dealt with and the punishment is dealt with and and the banishment and destruction and and all of the consequences of of evil and and all of the things that God should really do to, to make things right so that he's both just and because he's good and loving and merciful, Jesus takes our place. He takes the place. What would unmake us if God did it to us Jesus comes and stands in our place so that what would unmake us falls on him and unmakes him. And in that coming and dying upon the cross, he trades his place for mine. That's what we receive when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Not only him standing in our stead, but him offering us his place instead. And the big picture of the Christian story is God creates all things good. Evil comes into the world through human actions. God then speaks to us as human beings and starts making promises about how he's going to put all things right because only God can put all things right. And the Gospels are the story of how God comes to put all things right. And then the rest of the New Testament up until Revelation chapter 21 and 22, I'm simplifying things just slightly, that's the period of the already not yet. That's what we live in right now, the already not yet. On one hand... As, as I read in 1 Peter, I, I'm a sojourner. My true home is in heaven, but I live here right now. I have the Holy Spirit within me when I put my faith and trust in Jesus as a type of first fruits, but I, I still, the God hasn't created the new heaven and the new earth yet. So we have creation, we have fall, we have the promises, we have God keeping his promise, we have the already not yet, and then at one point in time, which is still in the future for us, what's described in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we have God making a new heaven and a new earth, the end of the story, which is the beginning of the real story. It's the end of this story, and God makes all things new. He makes a new heaven and a new earth. And for those who are the followers of Jesus, the adopted children of God by grace, the true story, the long story, the unending story where every day is better than the one before, is just the beginning. And in that story, I will have a resurrection body and dwell in the new heaven and earth that God will make. Now, you know, if you have a story, if you understand that the end of all things is annihilation, then why should you care for this creation right now? If at the end of all things is going to be annihilation, why should you care for other people who will only be annihilated if, if they end up managing their karma, they will only end up being annihilated? Why, why, why care for things? Now, that, I'm not saying that there's no caring for things in, in cultures dominated by Hinduism and Buddhism. I, I, I would say it's because we're ultimately made in the image of God, and there's this, in a sense, residual memory in each person that, that in fact, this, that there's this different story which we were made for that that creation isn't a prison for our souls or our spirits, that the created order is not a prison. The created order is not a punishment for us. There is, On one hand, the, the story of Hinduism and Buddhism is that the created order is a type of punishment for us, but, but, the, but there's this part of us that knows that that's not true. And, and so you, you see tended gardens, and, and you see and you see good things that happen. But for us as Christians, this idea that God created us have bodies and to be in a relationship with him, and that that when the story is all over, that there will be new heaven and a new earth, then of course we should care for people. And of course we should care for this created order. And and you and I might know that we'll never make this world perfect. In fact, if there's one thing that comes from this story, is that the modern habit of organizing uh, ethics and right and wrong around some type of utopian future and that's a very, very powerful, you know, just the whole, every, anytime somebody says that something's progressive, it means that they believe there's some type of utopian future that human beings are going to make that we're moving forward towards. And Christians are to rid utopia from their minds completely and utterly. It's it's one of the most important things for discipleship today and to form a Christian mind today is to completely and utterly rid our mind of any form of man-made, woman-made, human-made utopia because we understand that God is going to do this. But it doesn't mean that we don't care for things. We care for things even more because creation matters to God. It was made by God, and the end of all things will not be annihilation, but it will be a new heaven and a new earth that God makes, and that God's adopted children by grace will dwell in forever. Get my glasses back on <laughs> I was at it 's funny one of the things that can unite um, some churches is is what they say that 's wrong. <laughs> um, I was at a United Church funeral a few years ago, and uh, the minister said that the person who died had become an angel. Uh, it was just a, about a, a year after i 'd been at a, a Roman Catholic Church and the priest said that the person who had died had become an angel. And, um, and it's very, very common to hear people talk. It's a bit surprising to hear a minister or a priest say that a person who dies has become an angel, but it's a very common type of idea. And, um, and so if we do try to imagine heaven, it's trying to imagine what it's like to be an angel, a disembodied spirit with wings, well, without wings, but a disembodied spirit... And and on the other hand, many of us, when we try to imagine heaven, we we, we sort of are are greatly influenced by Hollywood. Uh, One of my favorite movies is Gladiator. I know that it's almost completely and utterly wrong about everything that it says about the Roman world. But apart from that, (laughs) it's, it's a very, very compelling movie, as long as you don't think you've learned anything at all about Rome from watching the movie. Just remember that. I learned nothing about Rome from this movie. It's a good movie, and um, and of course, you know, at the end of that movie, I don't, it's not a spoiler alert. Uh, you know, you see the fellow, and it's of course in a. It's the the, the fields look beautiful, and the light filter is very nice, and it's uh, and there's a uh, there's a bit of a wind, and everything is blowing, and he and he gets reunited with his his wife and his his son, the the hero of the movie, and and that's that's heaven, and so, most of us. Uh, In Canada, when we do try to imagine heaven, what we imagine is either becoming like spirits or we imagine some type of future like that without God present. But we see that the Bible is asking us to imagine something which is very, 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 very different. Like already, this is quite different than how most people try to envision heaven, but but the next part is even more stunningly different. Verses 2 and 3. Actually, we'll start at verse 1 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Notice that again. Remember I said You had to rid our minds of all sense of utopia, that human beings are going to be able to try to create some type of perfect society? Heaven here, verse 2, I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Here's the thing. I'm going to word it in these ways. If you could put it up on the screen. I will live. Here's, here's what heaven is. Here's what you can pray you have a longing for. And I put it in terms of I, so if you write it down in your notes, it's not we, it's not you, it's not they, it's I. I will live in the city where I am a neighbor, where I have a neighbor, and where everyone has God as their neighbor. That's heaven. That's heaven. The city. Now, next week, we're going to look at... um, the, the second image, uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about the image of the bride and the feast, and next next Sunday uh, we'll look at Revelation 22, which has the image of the garden of Eden, a uh, garden of Eden. It's a, a, an image of a garden. But for now, all of chapter 21. In fact, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a few more talk a little bit about what it's like to be in that city, and verses nine to the end of the chapter is just a description of the city, and I'm I'm not going to go through and well maybe I will read it in a moment, but but here's the fundamental image. This is a spectacular, spectacularly important image. Right? So if the modern Canadian type of image is that somehow or another when you die you become an angel, well, if you're going to become an angel when you die, why should you really care about what goes on in the city? Why should you care about what goes on in the world? If you're just going to become an angel when you die, like why should you care about your neighbors? And if all that happens is when you die, you go to be with the people whom you like, Hopefully, they've picked you to be in heaven with them, by the way. That's an intellectual problem that people have never talked about, you know? What if it happens that you die, and it's like going to a party where everybody, when they talk to you, they're looking for somebody better to talk to? We wouldn't think that was heaven, would we? I hate going to a party where I know nobody. I get stuck with somebody, and I can tell they think they're stuck with me. And they don't want to talk to me even for an instant because their eyes are going like this all over the room, hoping they say, Oh, there's Fred. Uh what good to see you, Bill, they say to me, uh, because they don't even remember my name. And you know, but so people never think that, you know, when we die, we go to be with our loved ones, and they don't realize that their loved ones are hoping we won't be with them when they die. Okay? That's a, a and maybe we should send some letters to the National Post or the Ottawa Citizen to ask them to try to reflect on that problem in terms of the modern Canadian view of heaven. So, but you know what? So if, if, the, if the modern view of heaven is either angels or we're just going to be with people we like, why should we bother with neighbors? Why should we bother with the city? But heaven is pictured as the city. This is really important for, for modern Canadians and modern North Americans because so many... Christians flee to the suburbs with the hope that they don't really have to be part of the city. So many church slides in worship services are pictures of nature, as if real living is getting away from people and real living is getting away from the city. But in the book of Revelation, when it pictures the new heaven and the new earth, and it pictures where I'm going to dwell with my resurrected body, it pictures a city. And it pictures a city where I have neighbors. And it pictures a city where I can't move into a neighborhood without having God as my neighbor. Everybody who lives there has a neighbor, and everybody has a, one of their neighbors is God. And we dwell there with God as our God and we enjoy it. I mean, I don't even have to, can you see how, this is revolutionary in terms of how we should view our city. Not that Ottawa is heaven, far from it. (laughs) But the city matters to God. Cities matter to God. And you know, to, to understand that in heaven, I'm gonna have neighbors, and I'm gonna be a neighbor, Like all this week, and it sort of struck me. I was trying to think how to put down this, you know, God will dwell with us and all of that. And it struck me, neighbors. I mean, I think I'm an all right neighbor. I I I, I live in the suburbs because that's where I can afford to own a house, and and I live in one of those suburbs where you hardly know your neighbors, you know. And um, um, but this this means that I mean, this means on a city level that we should have a heart for our city, which is part of our vision statement. And and and. And 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 it's an important thing for us to figure out how to be great neighbors. On one level, it's training for heaven, and and even at, apart from this 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 level of what it means for the city, it, it's part of the reason why normal Christian life. Once we give our lives to Jesus, there should be a drive that we have within us to connect with other Christians, and to grow with other Christians, and to to meet with Jesus in the presence of his people and that, that should be a drive of us. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have prayer meetings. That's why we have ministries. It, it, it's, and, and that's why it's appropriate for us to try to figure out ways to connect because it's all connected to this in a small way with this image of heaven as a city where I will be a neighbor, and I will have a neighbor. I will have neighbors. That's probably what I should say. I will have neighbors, and where everyone has God as their neighbor. That's what the book of Revelation is teaching us. say a few more things about, how's how's my time? We have time. Let's look at some of the ways, just briefly, how the city is described. You jump down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And I I talked about this image of the bride of Christ. It's a corporate image. It's um, A lot of us as Christians, when we think of our relationship with Jesus, it's a private relationship. But the image here of heaven is a corporate relationship. And it's to, to try to bring home to us that there's this corporate sense. You know, in, and and, and, and it's, it's really important. You know, if I sing to Jesus as if he's sort of my boyfriend, that's like a weird thing for a guy to sing about. Jesus, you're my boyfriend. It's like, that's weird, okay? But if we're to understand ourselves as, that I'm part of, as, as together, all who are part of Jesus, that we're the bride of Christ. That's this corporate image which is it's calling us to. It's it's why at different times I've described that we enter the Jesus way one by one. Because I, I can't God doesn't have grandchildren, right? We all individually have to make a decision for Jesus. We enter the Jesus way one by one, but we walk the Jesus way with Jesus and others. And that's that's what the Christian faith is. We enter it one by one, but we walk the Jesus way with Jesus and with others. Anyway, we talked about the the bride a few weeks ago. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. And then it describes the different gates in the apostles, and it's really showing here how there's two testaments but one Bible. (laughs) Two testaments but one Bible. And God only has one people. And up until the time of Jesus, the primary way to describe the people of God was, was the nation of Israel. And now it's, it's those who are in Jesus, which in, both includes Israel and, and those who are from pagan backgrounds like myself, down to verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square; its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. And um, and just, what, what um, 12,000 stadia was the length of the Roman Empire. That's what 12,000 stadia was. The length of the Roman Empire, give or take a few stadia. And so this city is the length of the Roman Empire at the time John was writing. And its depth is bigger than the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was wider than it was long. And its height is the height of the Roman Empire. He's imagining a cube. And um, it's really hard for us. It's hard for even ministers like me. I, I mean, on one level, um, you know, it's probably easier for me to use images to talk to you folks from The Walking Dead than it is from the book of Leviticus. I'm not trying to insult you, but probably most of us have spent more time watching The Walking Dead over the last couple of years than we have studying the book of Leviticus. Um, if not the Walking Dead, some other type of thing from television. But basically, what John is describing here, what the angel is describing here, is a perfect cube. And in the Holy, of Hol- the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the Jewish people, in a sense, understood God to dwell, was a perfect cube. And so it's describing here, even the things of the images, of, of, the, of the crystals, and everything like that, it's describing that in a sense the city, which is now as big as the Roman, as wide as the Roman Empire, and uh, the same height as it is and and depth, it's describing the Holy of Holies, and that's where we live, in the Holy of Holies. And all of the other stuff, the, the, the jewels and the walls, they all exist to show the glory and the light and the movement and to magnify the glory of God, and that is where you and I will dwell with our resurrected bodies, I um, I I I actually watched The Walking Dead, which is a, a bit of a, of a stretch for me because I don't like scary movies. Um, which is why, other than sort of like The Walking Dead and the occasional zombie thing, which I don't really find that scary, by the way, um, sort of like I don't know why they have to show all the blood spreading out and yeah, you know, just anyway. Um, but, I, I, you know, maybe it's because when I was a kid, I, had, I have two things, two very clear memories of things that terrified me when I was a child. I, you know the original uh, Wizard of Oz movie? You know that old one? Yeah, yeah. I had nightmares for weeks after seeing the flying monkeys. I'm not making that up. I had nightmares for weeks. After I, I remember at the time, I, I think I screamed when the flying monkeys show up in the Wizard of Oz. I look at it now and I think, gosh, is that ever cheesy and corny looking but as a kid watching it I had nightmares for weeks uh, and in the Christmas Carol, the old one you know with uh, Alistair Sims and um, uh, I had nightmares for weeks after I watched that as a kid with my parents and I remember just seeing the dark terrified of the, of the ghosts but the, the book of Revelation the book of Revelation is a, is a little bit like a Christmas carol it's, um, even though he, he's telling us all about heaven and everything like that, there's going to be an opportunity for us to repent. And it's um, sort of a little bit like, if you know, the, the story of the Christmas carol is that after they've, he's had the dreams, he wakes up and he discovers that they were just dreams and that Christmas is just happening right now and that he has a chance for new life and repentance. And that's what the whole book of Revelation is like. That even this chapter and next, there's going to be an opportunity for us to realize that it hasn't happened yet, and we can heed the warnings and believe the promises, and that God can do a new thing in our lives. But let's go back to the verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more But as for the the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you're a guest here, I talked about the lake of fire last week. I'm not going to talk about it again. You can go back and listen to it online. Here's the first thing. There's two sort of things in this in closing. The first thing is that God takes a scattered, incomplete, finite, fallen slave and makes me fit to dwell with him. That's what this text is saying, that God takes a scattered, incomplete, finite, fallen slave and makes me fit to dwell with him. You see, the Bible portrays that any type of rebellion against God, rather than us actually becoming like God in our rebellion, all we do is become slaves of different things. We become slaves of lies. We become slaves of idols. We become slaves of uh, and idols are things which we serve, love, obey, trust, and hope in. So if we, if if our if we're serving, loving, obeying, trusting, hoping in money, in a sense we become a slave to money. Money starts to run us. We want more and more money. We can't get enough money, and when. We don't, and then when something frustrates us in our in our desire to get money, we become angry and we become depressed, and we don't even realize that we're now serving it. We we serve sex, we serve lies, we serve ideo- lies, we serve ideologies, we serve all sorts of things, and by serving them, we become slaves. And the picture of heaven here that we see is us in our resurrected bodies. God takes me, and I'm scattered, because you know I, that, that I, my betrayal of what I am there—that's not completely accurate. I mean, what's many of our thought lives like? Like many of our thought lives are like, maybe maybe I'm just vastly more sinful than all of you, but what, what goes on in our thought lives? Sometimes we just think, gosh, I wish I could get revenge on that person. And sometimes we think of kindness. Sometimes we want to imagine that we're the superstar, and other times we want to just be the quiet servant. Sometimes we imagine that everybody is praising us, and sometimes we just want to think of some way that we can give to another person and praise them. And that inside of us, on one hand, there's parts of our life that are in deep slavery, but on the other hand, we know that there's some areas of freedom in our lives, and that we're scattered, we're incomplete, we're finite. And we're fallen, which means that we can't be related to God in our own effort or power. But fundamentally, what we are is in bondage. And Jesus comes to deliver us from bondage. And partly what happens is God's word works its way in our heart, as the Holy Spirit moves and works within us, as we're gripped by the gospel and learning to live for his glory, that what God brings into our lives is freedom. Freedom to love. Freedom to give freedom to forgive, freedom not to be bound. And that tiny bit of freedom that we start to experience as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, as we're gripped by the gospel, will describe what we become in its fullness when we die. That when we die, God does something in us that's only the tiniest little seed on this side of the grave. But after the grave, when Jesus welcomes us in his arms, we will experience for all eternity in its fullness. No longer a slave, but free. No longer scattered, but whole. No longer incomplete, but complete. Still finite, but fine with being finite. Because we rest in the everlasting arms of God. and No longer fallen and bent, but made straight for all eternity. And only God can make me fit to dwell with him. But the text then gives us this choice. Put up the next slide. And here's the choice. It takes courage to say no to lies and death and evil and idols and to say yes to Jesus. Choose courage. Like if there was to be a sentence to summarize that, you know, if if you go back and read things about how to preach, they often say you should have like a sentence which sort of gives unity to the whole sermon often doesn't show up in, in the actual sermon text itself, but it sort of helps you to, to govern how you do, your point. I'll, I'm going to tell you what mine was, okay? Maybe I'll put it on the computer for you if you, if you want to Mine would have been this. No heaven is real. This is what I think, Revel- if I want to try to organize all of Revelation chapter 21 in one sentence, and usually it's about uh, something being true and something that you have to do, and ha- this is how it is. No, no heaven is real, therefore choose courageous faith in Jesus. No, heaven is real, therefore choose courageous faith in Jesus. No, heaven is real, therefore choose courageous faith in Jesus. And, and the text here, when it says about you know, but the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable is for murderers, it, it realizes that on this side of the grave, it takes courage to say no to lies. It takes courage to say no to death. It takes courage to say no to evil. It takes courage to say no to idols. And it takes courage not just to say no, because the Bible doesn't teach us just, the Bible isn't a faith of no, 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 no. It's always a no, so we can say yes. And the yes is to Jesus. And the text here, when it says in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, it's in a sense introduction to the whole thing, to recognize that it takes courage, it takes courage to live a sexually chaste life, life in our day and age. It's mocked, right? It takes courage to, to practice forgiveness. It takes courage to practice financial generosity and tithe. It takes courage that even though maybe everybody in the party is all very, very interested in this person who's involved in magic, and, and and it takes courage to say that that's not what you're involved in, that you think that it's wrong. It takes courage in Canada when abortion is just assumed to be the way that the Canada should be organized. It takes courage to say no to that. It takes courage when all of the best minds in our culture are saying that there should be a way for people to take their own lives and to have doctors be able to kill people. It takes courage to say no to that. It takes courage to say no to lies and death and evil and idols and to say yes to Jesus. And the purpose of Revelation 21 is choose courage. Choose courage. Carl Barth famously said that courage is fear that has said its prayers. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Some of us might not feel very courageous. Some of us just might know all sorts of fears. That's fine. Say your prayers. Ask for courage. God will give you courage. Know that heaven is real. Therefore, choose courageous faith in Jesus. Let's stand. Father, we ask that you would uh, gently but deeply pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning. Uh, You know, Father, how much uh, we let Hollywood uh, shape or other sources shape the way that we understand what it's like after we die. Uh, We ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a work of healing and cleansing and restoration and renewal in our minds so that your word will form how we think about what happens after we die. And we ask, Father, that you you so fill us with a knowledge of the reality of heaven that we might have greater courage to live for you in our city, to pray and to work for the flourishing of our city, to pray for the, the ways that our city could at least in some tiny minute way model the heavenly city, that we could work for our city in such a way that the stench of Babylon be lessened. All the while knowing, Father, that one day that we are made for that heavenly city where we will have neighbors, where you will be our neighbor, where we will have resurrection, resurrected bodies. Father, fan into the flame within us such a longing and yearning. Help us, Father, to know that heaven is real and to choose to have a courageous faith in Jesus as we live each day. And all this we ask in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen.